Hi, this is Todd Churches, and this is Awakened Nation with Brad Zalas. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zalas, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Hey, everybody. I have a great friend on today. And uh, we met, how many years ago was it, Todd? It was like 2014 or something like that? Something, the years all blend together. So often I think, oh, that was just like a year or two ago and it was like 1984. So the years just, <laughs> I don't the, know. But yeah, it, was, uh, it was a while ago. We've had some great collaborations since then. and uh, yeah. Well, a fellow New Yorker, you know, you were born in the in New York. I uh, became a transplant, but uh, we were just talking in the green room about what it's like to be a real New Yorker. Am I right? That is true. Native New Yorker. Mother from the Bronx, my father from Brooklyn. I'm from Queens. And so uh, covering three of the five boroughs. There you go. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about that today and uh, the Yankees and uh, all kinds of stuff. So get ready, everybody strap sure. in. Uh, we're going to be talking about visual leadership, uh, and my buddy Todd is the man who wrote the book on it. So let, let me read your, your bio real quick. Todd Churches is the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, a New York City-based consulting firm specializing in leadership development, public speaking, and executive coaching. He's also a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at New York University, and a lecturer on leadership at Columbia University. Todd is also a TEDx speaker, and uh, everybody go watch his TED Talk. It's, it's really touching. The Power of Visual Thinking, which led to his book. We're going to be talking about that. He's the author of Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. And it's published by Post Hill Press of Simon and Schuster this year, 2020. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Todd Churches. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be here with you. And uh, I remember years ago when we first met, how long was I talking about when I write my book, when I write my book, when I write my book, and you were like, <laughs> just get it done, man. And I finally did. The great part about this is um, you helped me develop my workshop and my workshop style. Uh, but you've been doing this for an incredibly long time, so I felt like I was really in good hands. And what was hysterical is when we started doing this first round of, of trainings and workshops, you were the DJ, man. <laughs> you kept bringing up songs in, during the breaks that fit along the generations we were talking about. And that was, that was funny. Yeah, was I was trying to theme fun. the music. I have my different Spotify mixes when I'm teaching. I have my time management mix. I have my visual leadership mix. I have my change management mix fe featuring Bowie's ch -ch -ch changes. So it uh, just sets the mood, sets the tone, and, and makes it fun. You know, there's so much boring training out there. We've all seen it. We've all uh, been in it. And it uh, it's like, why torture other people if, if you know what it's like to be on that end? So I, I try to make training entertaining, which is my company's motto, by the way. I love that about it. Now, let's start digging into this because when you said, and here's a copy I'm going to hold up to the camera. Everybody can see visual leadership. Uh, when you started telling me this idea of visual leadership, I was sitting there kind of like, hmm, what's he talking about? Because I'm a brand guy. So if you, I'm, I'm not a huge um, football fan, but if you put up, you know, the Raiders logo or you put up the Giants logo, I immediately have a story. 
I immediately have a story in my head and I can go with that. So I was thinking, oh, maybe that's what he's talking about. But let's talk about you being in China and actually discovering this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that once you introduce it to people, they're like, oh, yeah, I do that all the time. I never, had, I never knew there was a word for it. I never really thought about it before. So it creates awareness and, and uh, allows people to do it more effectively. So basically, long story short, I moved to L.A. years ago. I talked about this in my TED Talk. Um, and I took a job. I was in the TV industry for years, which was my dream. But after a series of horrible bosses, you've heard some of the horrible stories. The <laughs> boss went through the box of pens at my head and keeping a, an abuse log, a daily abuse. When you, when you get to keep a daily abuse log, you know you're not the greatest job uh, of all time. So, um, so basically, I left my job at one of the top TV networks. Uh, I won't say which one where I had that psychotic boss, but the network had a C, a B, and an S in its name. So um, I left that company to take a job as a project coordinator as, as a theme park company just because my friend was working there. I just needed to get out. I just needed a job. And we were working on this theme park project in China, and I was doing budgets and schedules and stuff. And then the project manager moved to another job. And like, oh, you're now the project manager. Oh, and by the way, you need to go to China to oversee the installation. And I didn't have a passport. I didn't know where China was on a map. Um, I was 30 years old at the time. And so we manufactured these life-size robotic animal figures in, in, um, in LA, um, kind you would see at Universal or Disney. And we shipped them across the Pacific Ocean in shipping containers. And I get there to oversee the installation with just two of my crew members, a mechanical guy and an engineer, and no one spoke English. Well, everyone there was Chinese. It was Shenzhen, China back in 92 when it was not the high-tech hub it is today, right? So it was right. agricultural and industrial. No one, no, most of the people there had never seen a Caucasian before. So pe and I'm 6'4". So people like staring at me, taking pictures. I was actually holding babies and people taking pictures of me. Um, it was a little <laughs> surreal. But we needed to get this installation done and we didn't speak Chinese, they didn't speak English, including their translator who spoke almost no English. So what did I do? I said, we have to communicate here. And I picked up a pen and paper and just started drawing, drawing and sketching and pointing. and. So I said, it turned into a game of Pictionary and Charades. So two words sounds like tape measure. You know, so it's like just trying to figure out how to communicate. And we got it done. So I realized later on that, you know, communication, we always think about what words we use and how we say it. But we also communicate, as we know, from the Morabia, famous Morabian study, right, about body language and tone of voice. We communicate yeah. in a variety of different ways, and one of which is visually through both pictures and imagery and drawing, but also in visual language. So that's when the light bulb went off. And it kind of laid the foundation for a lot of my work ever since. That's incredible. And it, what, it, what has been amazing to me is I've seen you work. And so when you put together a PowerPoint presentation, and we all talk about this death by PowerPoint, yeah. your PowerPoints are very different than everybody else. You want to talk about that? Because they are visually driven, but they yeah, don't I mean, waste time. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Um, you know, when people, you know, the whole death by PowerPoint thing, you know, my brother always says, you know, PowerPoint was not invented to be a torture device, right? It was intended to be a, a means of communication. And yet we torture people with bullet point slides. When, and if the slides are up on the screen, what happens? We're reading them off the script screen as if it's a script or a teleprompter. You know, we've seen Steve Jobs, you know, he was one of the masters of communication with PowerPoint. You know, visuals, communicate with visuals, imagery, storytelling, metaphor, we could talk about all those different things, but um, the less text up on the screen, the better, because if it's up there, our slides should be supporting us, not competing with us. And uh, so many people, um, when I ask them about their slides, people know they're not good, but they don't know a better way. So, uh, and right. again, PowerPoint slides is just one component of, of a very common right. area of using imagery to support our messaging. 
Yeah, I used to get PowerPoint uh, requests and slides back before we had PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. We had to make them by hand. And there was always some doctor who wanted 14 points on one slide. And we were like, you can't do that. And they'd argue with us. It's like, it's got to be a two-parter. You know, I don't go any higher than five points yeah. and I take them out, you know, because people only remember three points. Yeah, generally. Yeah. And people, what, what often happens is a, a manager will say, we don't want a lot of slides, so you're only allowed five slides. So what do people do? They pack 50 slides worth of stuff onto five slides, which is not, so right. it's not about the number of slides. It's about, not about the quantity, but the quality. And it's, it's ultimately about getting your message across in the most effective way. I agree. I think people use PowerPoint as a crutch to not memorize their speech or yeah. their patterns within the speech. So they just turn around, they look and they go, oh, okay, we're going to talk about number six now. That's a bad crutch. You know, I, I recommend giving that up. Uh, <laughs> you're the guy we should talk to. Now, this is a powerful thing and you taught it to me. And this is the difficult conversation part. And you talk about this in your book and you lay it out, how to do the matrix and you know how to do the you, you actually visually lay it out, like the feedback sandwich, heroic conversations, um, dealing with those. Can you take us through that process? Because some people complain about the feedback sandwich. I think it is the greatest yeah. uh, thing to do, but let's go on that journey with this. Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a uh, the, the, when we talk about the power of using mental models and frameworks, right? There's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's, you know, there's all SWOT analysis, right? There's all kinds of, matrices, stepladders, pyramids, et cetera, right? What's the reason, one of the, the, the expression thinking outside the box has become a cliche, right? But one of the things I say is, it's become a cliche because it's overused, but one of my mantras is you need to think inside the box before you can think outside the box, right? Mm-hmm. Life and society and business and work, we live in a messy, complex world. But if we could create some kind of framework that we could put the messiness in so that we could see it more clearly, then you see solutions that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And again, that's the power of visual thinking. And a metaphor I just came up with literally the other day in the kitchen, because these things could come to you anywhere. If you had a silverware drawer and you just threw all the silverware in and you needed to put together four place settings, how long would it take you? A while to figure out the four spoons. And that. If you had a drawer with, with the different you know, compartments, how long would it take you? How much quicker would it be to take the four forks, four spoons, four knives out of the four compartments, right? So one is just messy and complex. The other is simplifying complexity by putting things into boxes so you could see solutions more clearly. So I love that metaphor because it really resonates with people, but that's what we're all trying to do is find simpler, clearer solutions out of the messiness of life. So, um, Wow, that is powerful. So I'm going to ask you about the Yankees, my brother. <laughs> all right. And your dad. Um, and for those of you who are listening, I want you to, how do we get a hold of you, Todd? Uh, what's your website that we should go to? My brand new website, which just launched recently, is literally my name, toddchurches.com. So that's, I also have, big, my company's called Big Blue Gumball, and I also have bigbluegumball.com, but my brand new site for my book and my, my speaking and everything is toddchurches, C-H-E-R-C-H-E-S.com. Excellent. Get a hold of Todd. He's a phenomenal lecturer. And if you need to have trainings, seminars, and webinars, and anything that you need when it comes to training and talent development, this is your guy. This is the man. And I know it firsthand. I've been in the trenches with I you. I appreciate man. that. Yeah, well, all our work we did around Generate, we co- co-wrote five, a five blog post series on generational yep. issues in the, in the workplace. And uh, yeah, we, we really uh, had some great collaborations, both in terms of uh, yeah. clients and, and the 
conferences and then our blog series as well. We're going to talk about that in a minute because we're going to talk about Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about your dad taking you and your brother to the Yankees game because this is one of the touching stories uh, that I I love that Todd tells. Um, But it really, it's about, it really helps you understand, you know, if you grew up anywhere else except New York, this is such a bonding story. That's what I like about it. Well, so many of them. It's, um, my father, we used to go to the Met games mostly growing up because we lived in Queens. So the stadium was much closer, but occasionally we'd go to the Yankee Stadium. I remember coming up, up uh, saw Mayor Koch uh, campaigning by one of the subways. And, How am I doing? How am I doing? So the throwback to the 70s in New York. Right. Um, but yeah, we used to go to the games at, as a family, and, uh, and it was just part of um, my father taught me math through teaching me how to calculate batting averages and the ERA. And so baseball was like our family religion. So my right. father grew up a Brooklyn Dodgers fan in Brooklyn. And then, you know, like everyone else, uh, they were, they were just, Brooklynites were deserted when the Dodgers headed out west to, to LA, along with the San Francisco the Giants, New York Giants, the San Francisco Giants. So um, yeah, just a lot of great memories about, uh, you know, fathers and, 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 and lessons learned and, and, that, and that type of thing. Yeah, I love those stories because I I grew up more in a farming community, so uh, I know what it's like to go to a Phillies game, but there's nothing quite like a New York City baseball game. Yeah, yeah, and I, I too, have been to Mets and to um, Yankees games, and the energy is just different. It's just an exciting experience. Yeah. I think we were one, we have the same game at the same time. We didn't even know, right? One yes, that game. was right. Yeah, me and yeah. Sebastian went, uh, Sebastian. my nephew. Yeah. And I, I text you, I go, guess where I'm at? And you're like, I'm here too. Yeah. <laughs> we're on the other side, the opposite yeah. side. That's one of those fun New York things. It's like you never know who you're going to run into where. It's just, it just makes it fun and exciting. Unfortunately, now with the pandemic, um, you know, it's, New York is not we, – we're thinking about it as it was, not as it is, but hopefully it will come back sooner rather than later. Well, it reminds me of Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld really gave you an expose on New York City. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of your favorite shows as well. But I, I, I met the real Kramer, by the way. He, oh, is, really? zany, he is zany like that yeah. in real yeah. life. Yeah. yeah. He's very much like that. And I've met Seinfeld a couple of times. Uh, went to a taping of the show. And I went, I, there's a picture of me. I'm wearing a puffy shirt just by accident. Uh, when I went to his book signing back in, I forget what year it was, in L.A., and there's a picture in my book of me getting his autograph. So uh, a lot of parallel tracks. And his book was just released this month by Simon & Schuster. Um, oh, wow. I actually did a little uh, LinkedIn post. I did uh, 10 things Seinfeld and I have in common, and number 10 was we both had our books released by Simon & Schuster in 2020. So that was kind of a fun, a fun little uh, piece. One of the stories that you and I really bond over is um... – Dealing with terrible bosses. Yes. Uh, you want to tell that? Because we, we would, we would, when we did the generational workshops together, um, every boomer in the room had their hand mm-hmm. raised with a story of a horrible boss. Yeah. And millennials, they looked at us like we were weird. Like, why would you put up with that? <laughs> yeah, the stuff our bosses did to us, like you would not, you would not get away with most of those things today. It would be a lawsuit within thirty seconds. So. Um, like I mentioned, the boss who threw a, a box of pens in my head because she wanted the fine point and these were the medium point. So um, all that, you know, all that crazy kind of stuff. And so my book is dedicated first to my wife, secondly to my parents, and thirdly to all the horrible bosses in the world, especially the ones I've had, without whom this book would never have been possible. So they gave me, as much as it was torturous and painful at the time I was going through it, gave me a lot of stories to, uh, to share over the years. Um, one boss walked me out to the front door to show me it was her name on the door and not mine. So I won't mention her name, but, uh, you know, the boss is, you know, without a little humiliation, 
um, you're not really a boss until uh, you get to demean all of your people, I guess, back, back in those days. Now, what was it that you wanted to talk about? We were, you know, we were, uh, went off on a tangent there. You know, uh, we were talking what? about Jen, uh, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. We were talking about that. Uh, yeah, you know what? This is this was the fun part, and and I'll let everybody know about this. People can look this up. Uh, we did a collaboration on a series of articles to kind of explain the difference between boomers relating into the the new world you know this new uh, you know future of work millennials what they need to let go of uh and then the trap generation right in the middle generation x and it, it was, i gotta tell you we had so much fun writing that together yeah. because you and i have this big thing in common which is we tell the stories of our childhood mm-hmm. and but we connect the dots to what's happening today so the, the funniest part was when we, we came up with the idea that Gen X is that the middle child, you know, on the Brady Bunch, Marsha, 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 uh, or uh, she would yell out, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha yeah. gets all the, the attention. Yeah, and it's yeah, true. It's overlooked and just like Gen X, they're just, you know, millennials and boomers get all the attention and Gen X is sitting there saying, when's it my turn? Jan Brady. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's very true because honestly, this happened right under our noses. You and I are boomers, so we're kind of we're sitting there going, "Okay, this is our experience," and our experience was homogenized and almost identical to our parents' experience. At some point, we got to a certain age where we would think exactly like our dad and mom, and we go, "You know, you were right," and you would just assimilate into their thinking. I think it was Mark Twain who said, "You know, my dad, you know, he was he was stupid, but when I was t- uh, turned twenty-one, he was the smartest man I ever met." Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, this is the the fun part, you know. You and I collaborating on this, it was the stories I think that that bonded us. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, we had a lot. Of, yeah, we had diff- very different fathers, right, in terms of our upbringing and different types of you know where we grew up was different, but we still you know, we had still the common pop culture references, right, growing up as TV children of the '60s and '70s, and then uh, um, yeah, that different mentality. And again, you don't want to stereotype any generation, but there are commonalities and there are trends and patterns that play out. And we did some things like. As a baby boomer, what happens when your boss is 20 years younger than you, right? That's a real practical thing. In the old days, that's not how things went, right? There was seniority. It was like pay your dues. And um, one of the things I would talk about is, you you start in the mailroom and aspire to the corner office, right? There's no more mailroom because there's no more mail. And there's not an email room as far as I know. In terms of the corner office, now we're all working from home. So anyone could have a corner office. I'm sitting in my corner office right here, right? So we all have a corner office depending on where you put your... Yeah, we both do. We've, we've made it. We've made it. <laughs> um, but that metaphor from the met working your way up from the mailroom to the corner office just doesn't play out in reality. Anymore. No. The world is very different. You were supposed to earn the corner office. And this is something that a lot of, of people don't understand. A boomer who has a boss that's 20 years younger than, than them actually feels like a failure. Like yeah. they did something wrong. Like I'm the oldest person in the room. I should be in charge. Mm-hmm. Why is that not happening? And so the, these these shifts are taking place, and they all tie individual individual leadership, mm-hmm. because we have this icon in your head, and it, it drives me nuts. By the way, whenever they show a boomer in a graphical form, they're always hunched over with a cane. Yeah, I'm like, what kind of boomers are you hanging out with? Yeah, yeah. I'm still playing basketball. I just put. A, I'm, uh, we have a place in Connecticut. I just put a basketball hoop out front. I've never shot better in my life. I mean, 
my cream skyhook is a little rusty, but I'm shooting from all over the street. It's like uh, if the Knicks need me, just call. <laughs> well, it's six four. You could have. Yeah. You could have done that. But yeah, like yeah, but like you're saying, it's like people of our age are not like the sixty or fifty. You know, I'm fifty eight, but we're not the fifty. I was watching All in the Family, classic show. From, you know, he's forty eight on that show. He looks like he's seventy five, right? Yeah, in today's so, standards. So like how we perceive people and the and the natural order of things, like you were just saying, it's like I've you know at this age I should be the boss. Well, right. Those rules are out the window. In corner office, you know, people are happy just working at this. You know, when they were open, working at a Starbucks or working in the park, right? Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Things have changed. Now I want to ask you a question, and this is you know when we're talking about visual leadership, getting back to the book, mm-hmm. it really what is this when it comes to impact as a leader? I mean, you know, cause we're sitting here and I, you know, we're talking about behavioral communications. We're talking about our stories of childhood. So how does this, you know, work when you're a leader in the C-suite or you're a people manager, how does this work to drive, you know, engagement? You know, well, the concept behind visual leadership, and if you look at the book cover, the way it's spelled, it's one word with a single shared capital L. So it's, it's visual leadership. It's actually a trademark now. It's an actual registered service mark. I have the, the, the U.S. trademark on the word. Um, the reason for the word is that your vision and your lens through which you see the world is inseparable from how you lead, right? You lead based on your, your, your paradigm, your view of the world, your upbringing, your biases and assumptions, right? So one, one of the concepts by visual leadership is how we see the world will influence how we lead, right? We have right. a vision. We talk about leadership, lead, you know, a visionary leader like an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs or having a leadership vision. What does that actually mean? It's about seeing possibilities that don't exist yet, right? So there's two components right. to being a visual leader. One is formulating your, your ideas and the other is compu- communicating them in a clear and compelling way to help others see what you're saying. That's one of my catchphrases is how do you get people to see what you're saying? In order to change the world and make that vision a reality, you need to sell that vision. You need to get it out of your head and into the head of others. So that's one component of it. Yeah, you know, this is interesting because the CEO of Merck for probably about 25 years, he had sat down and he drew out a pyramid and he had different components placed in it. And then he made it a visual. He had the mm-hmm. art department make it a visual. And that became the cornerstone of what drove everybody at Merck back when it started as Merck Sharp Dome Mm. uh, for the next 20, 25 years. And he kept coming back to that. So this visual ideology that you're talking about can be very, very powerful, especially if you can communicate the vision of where you want to take everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's like, how do you get others? It's so... No one leaders say, oh, it's, why don't you do it the way I wanted it done? It's like, you, it's so clear in your own mind, but people are not mind readers. It's like, how do you get that? It's nice if you could just hook up a wire from your brain to someone else's and just download. And so it's like, okay, now I see what you're saying. But it's, right. there's an art and science to getting that idea out of your head so that other people can visualize it and, and we're on the same page. I liken it to um, how do we get everybody on board to go to the moon in 1960s? You know, how do we get everybody to visualize and even understand what we're talking about? You know, we have a bunch of engineers who can probably figure it out, but the belief wasn't even there that you could do it. Mm-hmm. Even amongst the people that were at NASA working on it, they just go, well, we're going to try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you actually, but 
the thing is, like, you can look up in the sky and see the moon. And it's like, you know, we are here. It's like point A, Earth. Point B is the moon. And, you know, you have something visually to target, right? If, there was, if you couldn't see the moon, imagine the early explorers who were searching, leaving Europe and coming to America, like, you know, during the Christopher Columbus or earlier days. You didn't know what was out there. All you knew there was an ocean and there was theories. And that's why they thought they, thought they were in India. That's why they called them, you know, when they got to the, quote, West the Indies. Indies yeah. right? So it's about your vision of the world. What, how do you see the world and how do you picture something in your mind's eye, but get other people to see it and get them excited about it, inspire them, get them on board with making that vision a reality? Well, let's talk about the emotional component about this because yeah. this is truly um, what drives people. You know, you, you, like I mentioned, football earlier, you put up the logo of any football team, the fans are sitting there going, well, I remember back in the 60s. So there's a component to this that excites you and has to get you excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why teams have team colors and, and you, know, you rally around things. And, and Napoleon, just remind me of a quote from Napoleon where he said that it is with ribbons and baubles that men are led. Right. So, so what are the symbols? What are the icons? What are the rewards? What are the things that say, hey, we're on the same team? Those are some of the things that leaders do is paint that picture that makes uh, the intangible tangible. Right. The complex, simple, the invisible, visible. Those are all things. That's all what part of visual leadership is all about. One other component I want to mention, the, color, the cover of the book has a rainbow colored eye and no one in the world that I've ever met has this color eye. The rainbow represents diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, um, and in the lens through which we see the world. So one is, it represents diversity and inclusion. The other, it represents innovation and creativity, which is crucial to being an effective visual leader. And the other part, concept I've been talking about lately, is flipping the eye. Can you turn that eye around and look at yourself and your values and your belief systems from the perspective of others, and can you see the world through the lens of others who are different from you? So those are some variations on the concept of visual leadership, all of which are important. It's about how you see things, and can you see things from the perspective of others? That's powerful. And you have a quote at the very beginning of the book that I just, I love. I'm going to re-quote this all day long today. <laughs> leadership is the capacity to translate vision into reality. And that's by Warren Bennis. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's so powerful what you're talking about. What I love about what you're, you, you created, a lot of people don't look at it this way, don't even know it exists, and don't realize just how much they are influenced by a logo, a PowerPoint, a chart, a system that is visually laid out, or just the simple paradigm of diversity being right in front of you and not realizing that's what was missing. Yeah, think uh, about the traffic. Yeah, you're driving and you see a traffic light, right? Red, yellow, green. That's a color coding system that's part of our culture. We all know that what that means, right? Imagine if, you, if every city had a purple, pink, and orange, uh, you know, yellow. So imagine if you just, if you, there wasn't consistency. So color is an aspect of our life. What, what do colors represent in our life, right? right. Give someone a red rose versus a black rose, right? They would mean different things. So, um, so we, we, symbols, um, think about all the icons we use on emojis, right? That we use right. the modern equivalent, digital equivalent of cave drawings, right? <laughs> right. So 40,000 years ago, yeah. people were drawing a bison, a fire, and a spear on a cave wall. And today we have eggplants and, and heart shapes and thumbs up, right? So we're communicating visually all the time, but we don't really think about it. I think this gets it on no. people's radar to think about it. That's what I, I consider brilliant genius, what you just did. 
And here's the other thing. We have some visual expectations that I've learned on my own. My ex-wife and I, um, she's black and from Haiti. And I remember when I would introduce her, literally there was nobody around. And I'd go, hey, I'd like you to meet my wife, Norma. And people would look around her. Where? Because they were expecting me to be with, you know, uh, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman uh, named Wendy, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and, it, and vice versa. You know, in her culture, uh, they were like, well, this is my husband. And I'm walking up the path and there's nobody else. They're like, where? You know, they're yeah. looking around. So we get some visual ruts sometimes that we're used to, that we expect. I mean, I had it as a kid. Uh, being funny, mm. you were considered dumb. Mm when I was growing up, you know? And so there are some of these that uh, I think are powerful. Yeah, we're talking about biases, we're talking about assumptions, and that comes from where? It comes from our culture, our upbringing, what, we're t what we are taught, what we learn. So that's why the more experience we have, the more we read and expose ourselves to other things. I mean, um, you know, we, we learn what we're familiar with, what we're surrounded yeah. by. So that's why that China trip was so impactful for me. And I believe it or not, for those who don't know me, I am a three Bs guy a bookworm, a back of the scenes, behind the room kind of introvert. So mm -hmm. that is me. So for me to even be doing all the stuff I'm doing these days is well out of my comfort zone. But right. at the time I was sent to China, 30 years old, I didn't have a passport. I had never traveled outside of the US, but I was terrified. I did everything possible to come up with excuses to not go. And I forced myself, I went and it changed my life. So it's like, you never know. Um, it opened my eyes, you know, literally visual thinking um, to, a whole other world and seeing things from other, another perspective that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And that, my friend, is what I admire out of you like crazy. Because the first time I met, I'm, I'm sitting there going, you, you are the quintessential bookworm nerdy guy. You know, that I'm, I'm a geek, totally, so I get it. I'm well, in your band, in your wheelhouse, because I, I like to read Dune, okay? Well, Who likes to read Dune, okay? Unless you're well, really into it. So, And then I see you get up and speak. I see you get up and give a TED talk. I see you get up and you're, you know, a speaker at Columbia and NYU. And I'm going, this, I know this is outside of his comfort zone and you make it look easy. Thank you. I'm the poster boy for imposter syndrome. So when I, whenever I hear people <laughs> talk about imposter syndrome, it's like, I get it. I'm there. Like every time I get up on a stage or in front of a class, I'm like, who, what am I doing here? Right. Who am I yeah. to be doing this? And yet who is anyone to be doing if you really think about it? Right. Exactly. Uh, Michael, I'll say, uh, he's a PhD in psychology. He did a Ted talk and we met, I, I helped, uh, coach him in his Ted talk, but he wound up on the show because he had this great, great concept. He discovered he was an introvert pretending to be an extrovert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he started going through, uh, helping introverts get on stages and talk and be comfortable with that. And his philosophy is, um, creativity, the more creative you can get, for you, the more you'll relax in that comfort zone because it's just fun and it becomes that. And I think you, you do that naturally, my friend. No, thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of myths about introverts. So introvert doesn't mean you're shy. It doesn't mean that you're scared of people. It just means your, your energy comes from a certain place. You need more alone yeah. time. You need time to think and process. I could talk for hours of, with an interesting person such as yourself. We would never run. I bet if we had oh, to do a 12-hour podcast, we would not run out of things to say. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. Right? But You're you put not, me in a room with someone who just wants to talk about the weather, and I, I'm bored out of my mind within 30 seconds, right? So, yeah. like, I want to talk about things of substance. And introverts, you just, you're exhausted afterwards. You need to go home, take a nap, and pass out. Um, <laughs> 
So um, I always say 80-20. I like to spend 80% of my time by myself thinking, writing, creating, and 20% of my time around other people. Other people, extroverts, have the opposite. Jeff Schwartzman, yeah. our mutual friend, and my colleague, boss, teaching partner, he's an extreme extrovert. If he doesn't, if he's, he's the first one at a party and the last one to leave. I'm the last one there and the first one to leave. So, but yeah, we're best of friends. So it's. Uh, I can see that. Jeff really is like that. He's very uh, personal. Yeah. yeah. I love that about but him. But he's also genuine, sincere. He truly loves people. As yeah. my father did. You mentioned my father. My father would talk to anyone and everyone, ask them about their families and their kids. I'm like, why do you even care? He's like, that's just being a person. Yeah. It's being my a human father, being. Yeah, my father, one year for his 50th birthday, we got him these, he mentioned he's a big baseball card. So we had a whole baseball fan. We had a whole deck of baseball cards made up with his picture of it, of him on it. With the, it came with the pack of pink chewing gum and everything. Whenever we went to a bank or somewhere and they asked for his ID, what do you think he used to show his ID? <laughs> the baseball card. The baseball card. He's talked to, so he spent a half hour talking. They're like, sir, excuse me, sir, can you move where you need to get on to the next customer? And right. Like, that was just my father. He would just talk to anyone. I always wished I was... A little more like that, but I do channel him occasionally. You, you do have that trait. And I picked it up from my mom and my grandfather. My mm. grandfather was a big band drummer, mm. and a little bit of fame, a little bit of fame. Cause it that's was where small. you get the drumming from. Yes, I'm a fifth generation uh, drummer yeah. in, in my family. And then um, my grandfather opened a bar slash tavern restaurant, and he would come out and talk to every customer, and then he'd run into somebody that he used to play at a country club back in the forties, you know, and, and that guy's a heck of a trumpet player. He'd always tell me. And then, um, my mom would embarrass the hell out of us when I became a teenager, because whenever we'd go out to like a, a let's say a Thanksgiving dinner, cause one year my mom just like, I'm not cooking. I'm tired of the family coming over and blah, blah. She goes, I'm not cooking. So we would go up to Harrisburg to the, um, to one of the places that would have a big Thanksgiving spread and do it family style. And you could take it home. Well, my mom would always find the, the one person who's alone. <laughs> hey, do you, would you join us? Come on over. You know, she would insist, and it would just embarrass me. Yeah, my you know, as a, used to do that all the time. He used to drive me crazy. Oh, I hated it, and it was like. So people have asked, actually asked me as as an adult, why do you like to eat? dinner alone at a restaurant i said you have no clue <laughs> so it's funny so todd thank you so much i'm gonna ask you uh our lightning round i'm gonna ask you three questions we're gonna have some fun with it but i want everybody to reach out uh to todd uh you can go to bigbluegumball.com or you can go to todd churches that's c-h-e-r-c-h-e-s.com uh, and well, link in with me. I love, um, um, I live on LinkedIn. So feel free. LinkedIn, get in and on the action here, visual leadership. And I'm sure this is one of many books you're going to be writing. Uh, and by the way, I have never had a book this heavy. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, it's like, it's like a pound and a half. <laughs> well, the and, reason is because it's visual and every, it's filled with color. Yes. Um, you use extra heavy stock paper because there's color on there almost every few pages. What I love is, and, and I'm just kind of paging through it, is it lives up to the hype. It, it is a visually driven book, which I love about it. All your quotes, your charts, and what, 20 years of, of uh, teaching and training and all yeah. that. So well, pick up a copy, everybody, please. Um, a phenomenal read, by the way. Thank you. Uh, your great stories are in there. So I love that. So you ready? I'm going to do ready. lightning round. Right. What should we know about Todd's churches that we may not know about you? Um, 
that's a tough one. Uh, well, one, one is uh, I read the complete works of Shakespeare by the time I was 18. So that's one of my claims <laughs> to fame. I was an extreme. So in addition to watching television, I don't know how many hours a day, I also was a reader. So I started with Hamlet. Uh, no, I started with Romeo and Juliet and Julius Caesar. Then my teacher, Mr. Patterson, got me so hooked on Shakespeare that I, got the, I picked up the Riverside Shakespeare and I went one after another and wow. I finished all 37 plays, 154 sonnets and four poems by the time I graduated from high school. So that was my, uh, um, one of the things that not everyone knows about me. Which one was your favorite? Uh, Hamlet, I love Hamlet, but I love King Lear and my favorite comedy is Twelfth Night. Uh, nice. I got hooked on Hamlet. Uh, we had a, a Elizabethan uh, literature in high school. Mm. And uh, so we, we went right from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales into Hamlet. Yeah. And I was behind on my, <laughs> my homework. So I said to my uh, teacher, Mr. Barry, he loved me to death. I said, I will do Hamlet's soliloquy mm. as Richard Burton, <laughs> which I did. And we had so much fun. He laughed. He goes, all right, you have a week. Okay, you better do it. <laughs> yes. So I assume that was before your Christopher Walken days. So I'd like, yes. to, I'd like to hear a little uh, to be or not to be as Christopher Walken. To, I think I'd pay to, to see that. Well, Walken, you know what he does? He removes all the punctuation on every script he ever <laughs> receives. So you can see it. To be <laughs> or not to be. Right? <laughs> you know, you go ah, like that. Since I was around a <laughs> That's funny. Oh. But um, yeah, that is fascinating that you, you uh, are into that. Yeah, I was just watching the Olivier uh, movie version of Hamlet, which I had never seen before. Oh. Really, he moved, He changes a lot of things. So if you're like obsessive, have OCD like me, it's like, wait, they skipped a line. Wait, why'd they move this? He actually moved it to be a not to be speech like to five minutes later than it's supposed to. And they, I read the reviews. I said, if you want to enjoy it, forget you ever read it and just watch it and let it and yeah. just enjoy it. Because otherwise, if you sit there like with my analytical, critical brain, instead of enjoying it, I'm picking it apart. So I just let it go. And it was great. Yeah. Um, what's his name did Hamlet um, that was really good um, I'll think of it later <laughs> but uh, uh, there are several versions where you just go oh I gotta watch that one so yeah. it's exciting so my um, my second question is um, what pisses you off uh, the list is endless so I don't even know where to start <laughs> <laughs> As a New Yorker, don't ask a New Yorker what pisses you off. That's uh, well, you that, carry it well. You don't. You don't seem like you get angry. Oh, I mean, uh, no, not, I just keep it internally until I just explode. Um, what pisses me off? Um, people who are not nice. Like again, we talked about the asshole bosses before. It's like don't be nice, be kind. Everyone's just yeah. trying to make a living and do their job and do the best they can and you know treat people nicely. It's like. If someone doesn't understand something, maybe it's your fault. Maybe they're not an idiot, right? So it's like just right. your manager. You know, everyone's just right now trying to get by. If you're in a store or whatever, be nice to the person behind the counter. You know, if, yeah. they're, if they're a jerk to you, that's one of the things. I will, I'm very patient with people who are trying and, and figuring out if they care. If someone doesn't give a crap, that pisses me off. Like if someone has a bad attitude, it's like, you know, we've all had jobs we didn't love, but... It's like, let's just try to make it through this. So that, that's, that, that's what I would say. Bad bosses and just mean people. Wow. Yeah, I, you, did, you did. That's a trait New Yorkers have. We will keep <laughs> it in. We will keep it in. And then when we explode, it's usually because that person deserved it. So. Forget about it. Did you see the Mel Gibson version of Hamlet? 
I saw parts of it as I like flipping around, but I never saw the whole thing. They changed the order a little bit too in that, but it was so well done that uh, the critics could not like pan it. Like they could, yeah. they could not destroy it because he actually did a good job, especially uh, in the suicide, you know, mm. soliloquy where he's just, you know, yeah. well done. So yeah. my final question All right. is at the end of your life, what would you want to be known for? Uh, helping a lot of people. I mean, my personal mission, the reason I went into doing what I do, management and leadership is, uh, again, because I've had so many bad bosses and my personal mission statement is making the, better, making the world a better place one leader at a time. And to me, everyone is a leader. So if I can inspire my students and other people to think of themselves as leaders and help them reach their potential and think, you know, make their dreams a reality, then uh, I will have been successful. I love that. And I bet you your wife is very proud of you. Karen's probably like, oh, that's my man. Yeah, right? she is. She is. We, <laughs> the pandemic is a true test of relationships. We are together 24 hours a day, and uh, we're still not sick of each other yet. So that's a good sign. Well, the New York City apartment life, people don't realize that for what you pay in New York City, you could get a house somewhere else. Yeah. And so you're, you are crammed in. Um, that is the true test of a relationship. Uh, it is but Todd I want to thank you so much for being on Awakened Nation my brother thank uh, you Brad it's great to be here and we haven't talked in a while so like I said we could have talked for hours more but it's always always fun we always uh, have a great time chatting and we, we get to, we're going to have to talk about Seinfeld at some point because right. that would be fun but yeah. thank you thank you everybody for tuning in to Awakened Nation don't forget to pick up Todd's book Visual Leadership it's a phenomenal read uh, I, I endorsed it actually so uh, I think it's a phenomenal um, ideology that is not being talked about. So please pick up a copy, reach out to Todd, and uh, tune in next week for another extraordinary episode here on Awakened Nation. Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.